My name is Javon McCormick. I am the president and CEO of Scribe Media. Uh, more importantly, I'm also a father and a husband. And on today, we are going to cover, wow, lessons from my pimp father. We're going to talk about my fuck it moments. And we're really going to dive into what did I learn from being sexually molested by that prostitute? What did I learn when I was in juvenile prison? Not juvenile detention, juvenile prison. What did I learn when I was in the hole, in that pitch black hole by myself as a 13 year old kid? So stay tuned. Welcome back to this next part of the delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with my special guest. Javon McCormick. Now he is uh, CEO of Scribe Media. It's a, a publishing company that's done amazing things. He has owned software companies. He has uh, made millions of dollars on the stock market. He's done a pretty, a pretty amazing things. Uh, we have gone deep and wide in the in the show so far. Um, before I go any further, I want to give you a chance, Javon, to just tell people where they can find out more about you. You have a book out, um, uh, where they can find out more about you. And because I know you also, back in the days when people could give presentations, <laughs> you did presentations live, but now, of course, you're probably doing them digitally. But there, I want to have people have the opportunity to find out more about you. Where would they go to? Wow. I, the easiest place to find me social media wise, I'm mm -hmm. only on LinkedIn. I, okay. I be the the most quote-unquote professional of the the social media so that's the only one i'm on or you can find me on my my personal website javonmccormick.com or scribemedia.com so those are only three places that you you can find me uh, as you mentioned yes i do keynote speaking I did my book. I got there. The, the The only reason I did that book was so my kids would have a legacy piece. That was it. I, right. I never wanted that book to be public. I never wanted those stories to be put into the the, the universe. But I, I wanted my children to know where I came from, how and how I came to be. And and it was important for me to that they have a, a legacy piece. So they and, and it's funny because my kids are young. They're seven, five, three, and two. Whoa. Uh, they will not be able to read that book until they're about 12 because there's some, some harsh, harsh things in there. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you talked about when your dad died and you went to the funeral and you thought it was going to be nobody there because he was a shitty guy. And then you suddenly see all these people there. And one of the things I, I like to say to, to my clients is, you have to remember that uh, the parent you have is not the person they were. And, and what, what do they mean? So sometimes the parent you have is not the parent you had. Your parent has evolved and grown and changed, and that's possible. But, but the fact that your parent existed before you did is in, in, psych, in a psychological process of chronology is difficult to concept because... I, of course, have no memory of you before. Right. And so the idea of their dad being this kid who lived, you know, in, in, in an abandoned house with a prostitute while his dad took off, um, looking after three little kids and having to steal food, meanwhile, they're staying at the Marriott, is difficult to understand. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so I think that that's why, you know, you doing that legacy piece is so important, vitally important. 
um, not just for them, but for anybody who who has forgotten that, you know, my dad was a narcissist, but I also know because I did bother to find out what his father was like and how he was treated that made him into that. Uh, my mother was an incredibly dysfunctional human being, but I also know why. And I also know she was, my mom was an incredibly loving woman. And I also know why that there were two sides. Uh, you know, what, what I said about my mom in, in a eulogy was that my mother was a Molotov cocktail of contradictions. You know, it could blow up on you in any moment. But, you know, she was the most loving person I ever met. She was also probably one of the angriest people I ever met. You know, so it, it's very true. And I think that where I want to go to in this part of the show was, you know, one of the things I talk about is um, how pissed off I get with people who want to talk about their aha moments. Who gives a shit? <laughs> who gives a shit about your aha moments? <laughs> <laughs> They're just bragging rights to tell yourself that you're better than you were or that you're better than the person you're telling it to. I think that doesn't, ah, moments don't change your life. I think what changes your life is fuck it moments. When you go, fuck it, I can't live like this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm out. I can't do this anymore. That moment for you of getting out of juvie, juvenile prison with your uncle your dad's sitting there with you at the game and saying, stay. You have the case, the little suitcase to get on the plane to go to Texas and stay with your mom. Was that a fuck it moment for you? And it, it 15. No, it, it wasn't. I, I was still, it was still chaotic. It was still, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. What would, I hadn't seen my mom in five years. You know, what was that going to be like reuniting with my, my mother? Um, no, I, I would say, you know, when the fuck it moment came for me, man, when, <laughs> when I, so I got reunited with my mother when I was 15. That's mm -hmm. when I, I got there and, and, and she took me to, um, she took me to enroll in school. I was, I was a, a sophomore in high school. And the counselor says, okay, you're going to be in these classes. And the counselor says a word. She says, you're going to be in geometry. No, I, I, man, I didn't even know what the word geometry meant, but I didn't say anything. Oh, it's like, sure. okay. Uh, There's that adaptability again. Yeah. And so I went and sat in these classes for six weeks and came back with all D's and F's and everybody figured out pretty quickly. Okay. This kid's not too bright. So my mother went and had me tested and I was testing on a fifth and sixth grade level, man. And, and here I was 15 years old. So mm -hmm. needless to say, two years rolls around. I, I don't graduate high school. I don't have enough credit. So I had to go to summer school and get my GED and never went to college. But where, where the fuck it moment came from, when I went home and I had my little GED and I told my mom, look, mom, I got my, my GED, I got my diploma, whatever. My mom said, okay, great. You've got two weeks to find a job or get out. And I remember what it was like at 13 being homeless on that bus stop. And I didn't want to be homeless again because now here I was in San Antonio, Texas, and I didn't know San Antonio. I knew Dayton, so I could sure. navigate Dayton. But San Antonio, this was a massive city. I, I didn't know, and I didn't want to be homeless there. Um, 
So I remember I went out, got my, my, my first little job. It was cleaning toilets. And when the, the fuck it moment came when I was sitting or looking at those toilets from the night before I always had to come in early and clean the toilets. And I looked at those toilets and I said, okay, if this is my job, if this is what I got to do, I'm going to be the very best at it. And everything I do from this point on, I am going to be the very best at it. No one, I, I remember saying to myself, I don't have a college degree. I even remember saying to myself, you're not smart, but no one will outwork you. Mm-hmm. And that became the moment of, okay, everything I do, I'm going 100, 150%. No, no one's going to be able to keep up with me. And that, that was the, the, the fuck it moment. So that's, there's two things in there. So one is the fuck it moment. And the other one is this moment of your mom saying two weeks and you're, and then you're out. (laughs) So let's go to that one first, because obviously, you know, what did you, do you remember your mom being affectionate to you, being kind to you? Oh man. My, the first nine years of my life, Oh, you know, I, I, we were poor. It was hard. You know, we had plastic on the windows to try to stay warm in the winter. We got dressed in front of the stove because it was gas and it kept us warm to, to get dressed. Uh, my mom always gave me hugs, uh, you know, it, it, but, but we were poor, man. We wore bread bags on, on our feet because our shoes had holes in them so we could keep our feet uh, dry in, in the Jesus, winter. Man. Oh yeah. I've gotten that. Yeah, man. We See, that. that's, that's, we, uh, and we definitely got dressed by the, by the stove. Cause it was warm. My mom would turn the oven on in the morning before we got, yes. before she got us up. Yep. So that the oven would be warm, and then we'd come down and we'd get dressed in front. She'd pull the oven down, and we'd get dressed there because it was warm. I'd forgotten about that. And yes, if it was raining or snowy outside, we had bread bags, which we plastic bags. Put those on bread bags on, man. Yeah. To keep your feet dry. Yep. Yeah. So my, my mom was, yeah, I, and, and here's what, I, I don't know if you want to call it, it helped or whatever, you know, given that my mom was raised in the orphanage, I was all she had. She didn't have any family. She didn't have any possessions. Like, so she treated me like a real life baby doll. So, mm-hmm. so I got love from my mom. Those first nine years I was with her is when I went off with my dad at age nine to, to 15, where all hell just broke loose. But uh, those first nine years, man, we were poor. We didn't have much. We struggled. Uh, my, my mom says it best. Um, we didn't live. We survived. Yeah. You know, we, we yeah. didn't live. We, we, we survived. I was learning things the same time my mom was learning things because she, she grew up in an orphanage. And, and my mom taught me this as well. And I, it, it's kind of like the unspoken thing that she always did whatever whatever dark shit she had to do to to get by my mom used to say this to me sometimes necessity has an ugly face and that that always stuck with me because you know it was a different way of saying you do what you got to do yeah i understand so so yeah so when when the when the she said you got two weeks to find a job yeah she um here here this is because that was pretty cold that's why i asked 
Well, and, and, and here, here's the thing. Um, I, I got to give my mom some love for this. When I got reunited with my mother, uh, 15 years old, uh, it, it was like August uh, when I, was, I, I got there because I remember enrolling in school shortly after. Uh, but here's what's funny. My mom had a hysterectomy the week before Thanksgiving. And you're not going to, I'm not going to cry though. <laughs> and, and my mom as a kid, I remember her always trying to make Christmas a big thing for me. I always, I, I loved Christmas. Uh, we didn't have much. We had this broken ass strand of lights, but man, for me, it was Rockefeller Center in, in, at Christmas time. <laughs> Um, but I hear there I was reunited with her 15 years old. She had a hysterectomy the weekend before Thanksgiving. And I remember the day after Thanksgiving, my mom was on the roof with me. Um, putting up Christmas lights. So yeah, she was, a, she was a good person. She tried, she did, she did the best she could do with what she had. And, um, but I, I look back, man, when she said, you got two weeks to find a job or get out, shit, that was motivating. <laughs> and I don't work in motivation. <laughs> no. Um, and, and, and what was interesting too, man, when I got my first job, she taught me, she said, okay, you get paid twice a month. One of your checks comes to me. And I thought, wow, that sucks. And, but what was cool, I, I was already, you know, I had learned from my dad how to negotiate, how to, how to have conversations. I said, okay, well, let's do this, mom. If I got to give you one of my checks, that leaves me with no money until I get paid again. How about I give you half of each one? And I remember her looking and she goes, okay, that's fair. And, and so from there on, man, she told me I had to wash my own clothes, buy my own laundry detergent, uh, buy my own food. Uh, and it was one of the greatest gifts she ever gave me. I remember my mom telling me specifically, she said, I am going to raise you to where you never have to depend on anyone. And that, that was a gift. Yeah. So when you, <clears throat> when you graduated, <clears throat> you had to go out into the world. You went out into the world, you cleaned toilets, you made this commitment that you're not going to, you, you, nobody's going to be able to outwork you. <clears throat> but when did you realize how much in deficit you were, you know, you, you couldn't spell, you, you know, you had a hard time with reading, um, you know, you were, <clears throat> you, I think you had told me before you self labeled yourself as not being smart. Um, and, and I want to be clear here. Um, you obviously had to be street smart because you guys survived, but intellectually, you know, in the world, not at that level, you didn't see yourself as smart. You know, I understand because uh, I was street smart, but I was, till I was 27, I was completely convinced I was an idiot. <laughs> I was just <laughs> dumb. Right. And a lot of that was thanks to my mom's messaging, but you know, um, when did you realize that you were so far in deficit? And how did you confront that? Uh, the first time I realized it was when my mom had me tested and I only tested on the fifth and sixth grade level. And I, I just, how, even to this day, man, I, I read so slow. Um, I don't hold a pencil or pen the right way, whatever the right way is supposedly means. 
you know, to, to this day, I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective. Right. But, but what I realized was I just wasn't academically smart. Right. I had a lot of smarts in, in other areas. And so where, where this, this will tell you the, the deficit when it really hit me though, I ended up getting a job at the insurance company. My mom worked at an insurance company and they had a, um, an opening in the, the mail room. So I was, I was a file clerk. I was the mail boy. And I, and I pushed this cart and, and it, this is like, this was a life changing moment for me. So I'm pushing my cart. And I walk past this sign. It says free lunch and learn 401k. Well, given my background, all I saw was free lunch. Free lunch. That was it. I was like free lunch. I am there. there. And they could have been teaching about ovaries. I was going. (laughs) So I said, okay, free lunch and learn 401k. So I, I start walking. I'm like, okay, go into that. And this lady comes walking by and I said, excuse me, ma'am. Now follow me here. I said, can you tell me where conference room 401k is? Oh, it wasn't a conference room. And that's when, you know, she, she kind of smirked and she goes, no, that's not a conference room. That's what the free lunch and learn is on 401k. And I was like, oh, and so I went to the free lunch and learn on 401k and I sat there and to this day, I heard the two greatest words in the history of mankind. I, you can keep, you can take fire. You can take the light bulb, the greatest words that, that have ever come my way, compound interest. When I sat there and I learned that you could take a hundred dollars and turn it into two, five into a thousand, that was the greatest gift that was ever given to me. And from that day forward, I was hooked on investing in, in all things of how, how do you multiply your money? How do you invest it? Give me every nickel and let me, let me buy stock with it. So when was your first investment? Oh, the dumbest thing ever. I bought a government, uh, a government series E bond that makes zero. And and I learned about nine months into, I'm like, these things suck. And so I went and cashed them all in and, and, you know, but I just kept educating myself, teaching myself. And then I I was so uh, blessed to be born during the internet, 95 rolls around the internet starts and starts. And then I was like, wait a minute, hold on. All of this information is free on the internet. You can learn, you, you can get company reports, annual report, quarterly reports. Uh, all of this information was free. I'm like, oh, this is incredible. Uh, there was a long stretch where I truly had a bit of anxiety when I started making more money because I'm like, okay, somebody's gotta be coming to get this. This can't right. be, this can't be right. Like. I, why isn't everybody doing this? <laughs> and so, uh, and, and yeah, that's when uh, that moment 401k is when I realized, oh man, I'm kind of, I'm kind of starting from behind the starting line. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about that is you then went on. Uh, I mean, you did obviously do used your smarts. You went on and you, uh, owned a software company 
How, how did that come about? Because you did well there as well. So, so let me, let me make, make sure I put that out there. So, so I didn't actually own it. So this, okay. this is, this is actually, uh, okay. here, here's what happened. I, I started at this software company and, and let me give you the, the lead up to how I even got there. Uh, 2007, we all remember the credit crisis, the, the recession, whatever I went broke lost all my money, negative broke. I had to borrow money from my, my friend and stepdad to, to pay my rent. And so obviously I had to go out and get a job. I got mm -hmm. a job and I was doing sales. I was selling uh, benefits, payroll benefits, healthcare, whatever. And I sold the service to a gentleman that owned a software company. I called oh. on him for 17 months straight, just nonstop, followed up all the time. He finally bought the service. 30 days after he bought the service, he calls me up and he says, hey, you should come work for me. And I remember saying to myself, man, that's a that's a young man's game. I don't know anything about software. He said, yeah, but your follow up is incredible. <laughs> he said, so we need a salesperson. Uh, he said, you know, we want to grow the company. They only had 13 people at the time. Uh, I was number 13. And I was the sales guy. I was the lowest paid person. I used to sit on a fold out metal chair in the storage closet to make my sales calls. Wow. Selling enterprise software. No clue what I was selling. Taught myself, okay. And, and I would call competitors to listen. Okay, what's their pitch? How are they doing this? And, and I would just take in this information. I'll fast forward two and a half years into working at the software company, I went from the lowest paid person to president of the software company. And we ended up scaling that company from those 13 people in that storage closet from, to having offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and Monterey, Mexico, and well over 120 people. And we did it in the course of five years. And what, what was crazy is most people like to hear how I went from the lowest paid person to the president of the company. Of course. But no one wants to talk about how I did it. No one wants to talk about the sacrifice. See, no. No, nobody wants to hear this part. In five years that I was there, I took 11 days vacation. In five years. You know this. We live in a world now where people take 11 days vacation in Q1. <laughs> and so no one wants to talk about the sacrifices that go into uh, achieving. But again, that's part of the, this, uh, what I call the American dream illusion. Yes. Right. The American dream illusion is and the American dream. I look at the, the um, rags to riches as a, as a beginning and an end, but I don't notice all the middle. Right. I don't pay attention to the story. And so I think I've understood it because I saw the movie and the movie was an hour long. But you would have a hard time compressing my life into an hour right. or an hour and a half. And I know for sure you'd have a hard time compressing yours in. You know, we've gone deep in this and I know we've barely touched the surface for a lot of different areas. So I think that people don't get that. And I think that if they do, they they don't really want to know that part no. because they like to keep the illusion that there is this magical jump that takes place. And then suddenly boom, you're there. 
Yep. But it wasn't suddenly boom, you're there. Oh, hell no. You know, I've gotten criticized for this. There's a picture of me in the delivery room with my wife uh, for our firstborn. And in the back of the picture, you can see my laptop open. And I've been criticized for that. They're like, oh, that's just ridiculous. That's, you went too far. And I go, well, wait a minute. Don't celebrate the fact that I went from the lowest paid to president, but then criticize how I did it. Right. You, you, can't, you can't have it both ways. I, I was always willing to sacrifice to get where I, I want to go. And that's the problem with so many people now. Everybody wants the success. No one wants to sacrifice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the, it's that grit that is so often missing. And I think that, again, it's the, the, the I, I've, I believe that the blessing is the curse and the curse is the blessing. So I know that there are a lot of shit from my childhood and yours that was pretty much a curse at the time. Yeah. But I know that I've, I've sharpened that blade and I've turned it into my weapon and it's become my strength. Has it cut me? Damn right it's cut me. And it's cut <laughs> me deep. But it's now something I can use and it's something that allows me to have a work ethic that, you know, as my mate says to me, he goes, do you know that you're a Mexican, you're a Mexican gardener, right? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, man, you work so damn hard and you do it for much less than you should do it. And he goes, yeah. you're like a Mexican gardener. You just keep going, you yep. know, and, it, and it's that. But I know that that comes from the outside toilet with the newspaper on it. I know that it comes from uh, scrounging around for food. I know that it comes from bread bags on my feet. Yep. You know, I know that it comes from those places. That's the, I think that there's something about that that's, and we're, we're on the brink of it again. I, you know, economically in the world that we're in, I think that things are gonna change dramatically there. So now you've, you've, you start the software, you've sort of, not so you've evolved through the software company um you've gone from being doing okay to going broke with the, the um 2007 2008 2009 situation that is only 11 years ago yeah and you've already been with scribe i think five years is it? Five, five years yeah i was five in years. software company five years and i've been here five, five years oddly enough this is the damnedest thing i started the software company march first 2011 i started at scribe march 1st 2016 wow so that's that's fascinating so how did you come to uh because i i got how you came to the software company because yeah. that was sales and then you got lifted in how did you come into to, into scribe because again i want to remind everybody I'm talking to a guy here who openly says I can't spell <laughs> um, and who is now the president of a publishing company, you know, which is all about words and spelling. So, yeah, man. so how did you end up in there? So, okay. So two, two things really, really quick. I, I really appreciate what you said. Uh, and I got to touch on this because it'll stay with me if I don't. Sure. In, in regard to the, the Mexican gardener. It blows me away at how critical it, here in the States we are of Mexican people. Mexican people are some of the hardest working people in this damn country. <laughs> and I'm like, I, 
come on in. Hey, you want to work? Come on in. And it really bothers me of how critical we are uh, of the the Latino immigrants when they they're not here to to bother anybody. They want to come here and create opportunity, and they'll do work that for whatever reason, a lot of white and black people in this country, for whatever reason, feel that we're too good to do it now. And so, yeah, I, I got a lot but of love. But for it's the, the immigrant the, mentality. Yes. My family, my family on my mother's side were Russian. They came into, they came into, uh, into England. They worked harder than anybody else. Yep. Right. The, and that's it. They started on a street called Berry new road that went from the port into the city okay that road had jewish people on it at the beginning who came in as russian immigrants then it became the indians the jews moved up and the indians came in they were immigrants they worked harder than anybody else yep. then the pakistanis came in and the jamaicans and all, you know and it was it was an immigrant road and it was the same road and they took over the same things they were selling shmata they were selling bits and bobs to make money they will work harder than anybody else. And it, this is the entitlement of nationals. Yes. You know, people talk about a nationalist, we have a nationalist mentality. You have a nationalist mentality, I tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go economically broke yep. because every economy in the world that's done well has done well because of the immigrants. I don't know if you know this, the US has won numerous, numerous Nobel Prizes. Almost all of them were from immigrants. Right. <laughs> They're American, but not by birth. Right. The greatest inventions America's ever done, not by birth, by immigrant citizens. And many of whom started out as not, not oh, you know, we're importing intelligence. They started as piss poor kids yep. who were dragged in by their family just for some hope. You know, and I think that this is one of the great things we forget about it is that that lack of entitlement drives business. And meanwhile, we're taking care of the upper echelon and not taking care of those people. Damn, you're, you're missing the fuel in the engine, man. Totally. Economic idiot, idiocy, just crazy. Yes, yeah. you're right. I apologize. Yeah. We went off on a tangent. No, I, I I love it. I love it. So so how did I get described? Um, yeah. So, so I'm at the software company. And I'm, I'm, I traveled quite a bit then and I'm flying and I, I don't like to fly. I hit a lot of turbulence and mm -hmm. I remember it scared the shit out of me. And I said to myself, oh my God, if something happened to me, I only had two kids at the time. I said, my children would not know where I came from. Mm. So when I landed, my mission was how can I put my story in a book? Because I oh. knew I couldn't write it, I, I right. but I, I knew I had everything up here, right? And, and so I said, okay. I hit up my network, and I got introduced to the two co-founders uh, of Scribe. So uh, Tucker comes over to the software company, and you know, I'm telling my story. I said, hey, here's what I want to do. And keep in mind, Tucker it, it has sold shit four and a half million copies of of books. And so I'm sitting there with him. I go, but here's the thing. I don't want my book to be public. I don't want to sell any copies. And he goes, I've never heard someone say they don't want to sell any copies. of. I go, this is a legacy piece. I go, my kids have to know one day where their dad came from. And he said, wow, okay. 
So we're wrapping up. We were in this big conference room and we're, we're wrapping up. And he says, hey, you've built a great company here. And, and I, I said back to him, I go, man, no one person builds a great company. He said, it takes a great team of people mm-hmm. to build a great company. He said, would you give me feedback on our process as we, we go through it? He said, we're, we're a young company. We're a little over a year old. Uh, just will you give us feedback? And I was like, yeah, why not? So I think he thought I was just, you know, saying yes to, to a, I was bullshitting him. So I get my first email from the company and, and I, I call him up and I say, hey, do you want this feedback? And he's like, yeah. I said, all right, man, I swing hard. He said, go for it. I said, this is good. This is good. This sucks. Who thought of this? Don't ever do this again. And he goes, you got all that from an email. I said, yes, sir. Would you sit on our advisory board? <laughs> and so I said, okay, why not? Then he invited me to an executive meeting. Then one day, he and, and Zach, the, the other co-founder, they invite me to Starbucks. We sit down and they said, hey, if we give you a lot of equity, would you become the CEO of our, our company? And in that moment, I was sitting there at Starbucks and I remember saying, I was like, holy shit. I've been the president of a software company. I can't write code. I can be the CEO of a publishing company and I can't even spell and I can barely read. And I remember sitting there thinking, I was like, God bless America. And I was like, <laughs> I, I'm in, count me in. And, and so I, I joined the company and, and here's what's funny. Um, here we are five years later. I'm actually the largest equity holder of the company now. That is so cool. Yeah, that is so cool. What a journey, man. What a journey. We are at the end of this section. We're going to come into our final section with Javon McCormick, um, who is, as he said, he's the CEO of Scribe Media, which is a publishing house doing amazing things. Uh, 1800 plus uh, authors doing amazing work. Uh, The guy, as he just said, barely can spell running the publishing company, can write code, ran the software company, has done pretty amazing things. And this has been an incredible journey. Uh, We want to thank Javon for joining us for this. And we're excited to come back into the final part of our show. And I hope that you'll come back with us and stay curious, my friends. Stay curious.